0: Hello and welcome to Resources Radio, a weekly podcast from Resources for the Future. I'm your host, Daniel Ramey. Today, we talk with Dr. Arvind Kumar, Associate Professor at the Hildebrand Department of Petroleum and Geosystems Engineering at the University of Texas at Austin. Arvind is a leading researcher on the topic of methane emissions from oil and gas systems, and has recently co-authored a paper demonstrating how the EPA can better account for these emissions which are notoriously hard to measure. We'll also talk about federal policies designed to reduce methane emissions and the voluntary commitments that some companies have made to do just that. Stay with us. All right, Arvind Ravikumar now at the University of Texas at Austin. Thank you so much for coming back to join us today on Resources Radio. Thank you very much for having me. So, Arvind, you've been on the show before, but it's been, I think, a couple of years now. So, um, can you remind our listeners, uh, just in, in general terms, like how did you get interested in working on environmental issues?
1: Uh, Sure. Uh, It's been uh, an interesting journey since my uh, graduate degree uh, in electrical engineering from Princeton University. So I was working on developing uh, sensors for detecting pollutants in the atmosphere, uh, like methane, carbon dioxide, benzene, and and other uh, gases. Uh, While I was doing my PhD, uh, I got involved with with a student group at Princeton called the Princeton Energy and Climate Scholars. Uh, This was a university-wide group that, that brought together students and faculty interested in climate. And energy stuff, and I just had like events and seminars associated with that. Uh, no, my friend invited me. I said, okay, yeah, why not? Let's let's do this. Uh, and then that's where I became very much interested in the broader questions around energy and environmental policy in the United States. Um, in fact, incidentally, uh, I I think it has a different name now. It's called uh, the High Meadows Institute. Uh, but, like, several of my cohort, uh, from the Princeton Energy and Climate Scholars are actually now faculty across the United States and around the world, uh, researching the same issues on, on energy and environmental policy. So that's been very exciting to, to see where they are and, and work with them now. Uh, but th- that's sort of where I decided, you know, uh, I know the engineering and the technology really well, but I really want to get involved in some of the broader conversations around how energy policy gets developed and how new technologies can actually help address some of our challenges, uh, in solving climate change. Uh, so I started talking to faculty at Princeton. I started, uh, visiting other scholars around the country. Uh, and that's what took me to, to Stanford University, where I was working with Professor Adam Brandt in the Energy Resources Engineering Department. Um, that was an exciting time because right around when I was starting my research on, on methane emissions and methane detection technologies, um, The Obama administration was strongly thinking about methane regulations for the oil and gas industry. And so there was a a large need on, on helping uh, develop this policy and understanding how some of the new technologies that were being developed could fit into this policy framework. So there's a lot of conversations between uh, myself and, and the team at EPA and just talking about how technology can can address the methane mitigation challenge and what kind of requirements does the EPA have and what technologies would would satisfy those things. And and ever since then, the importance of methane emissions uh, to address global climate challenges, as well as as the role of new technologies and systems that are being developed, has has grown tremendously over the past five years. And there's been no looking back.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And, and that's exactly what we're going to talk about today is some of those technologies and what we've been learning by applying them uh, and trying to improve our understanding of methane. Um, as you mentioned, you know, there's been more and more attention given to methane, including in the recent IPCC's um, assessment report. You know, methane really um, got a lot of airplay, I think, perhaps more than it has in previous uh, reports, or at least in the press it did. Um But let's take a quick step back um, and uh, let me ask you to just like remind us why we care about methane uh, and where it comes from in the oil and gas system and um, yeah, what we're talking about when we're talking about trying to reduce it.
1: Right. Um, you know, I- I'll try to address the second part of the question first because that really uh, is important to understanding why it's, it's, uh, important to, to address methane emissions, uh, from the oil and gas system. Um, so methane in general is the major component of natural gas that we use in our homes and for power generation. And methane is emitted, uh, across the entire supply of the oil and gas Uh, network. So right from exploration, production, where you drill a well and get oil and gas out of the well, all the way to processing the gas, cleaning it up, removing impurities, putting it through a pipeline uh, that travels across states, and then finally to distribution systems where it comes to your home uh, for cooking and heating. So methane can leak anywhere across the supply chain, uh, and it can happen randomly. Um, so there are three ways in which methane comes out into the atmosphere. Uh, it's called leaks, vents and flaring. So leaks are, are basically what we colloquially know as leaks. Now Things break because they're old, because of wear and tear and, and numerous other reasons. And so methane starts leaking when it should not be. Then there are vents. Vents are known releases of methane. So during the course of oil and gas production, there are situations where you have to release methane uh, as a safety precaution, or perhaps there's a device that routinely releases methane, uh, which is its normal function. And so those are called vents in that we know exactly where they are emitting methane. And the last thing is flaring. Flaring is is an issue of in, in certain basins, uh oil and gas basins in the country as well as around the world. What it basically does is it's just burning natural gas that's coming off the ground. For example, in an oil and gas field, if you have both oil and gas produced, uh, if you don't have a pipeline for gas, all that gas has to go somewhere, and typically companies burn them, and they call it flaring. Uh, typically, flaring and burning converts all methane into carbon dioxide, but sometimes it does not because burning is not efficient, and therefore that also releases uh, large quantities of, of methane. So that's the first issue. So you have leaks, vents, and, and flaring that releases methane emissions to the atmosphere. Uh, there's also huge geographic and temporal variability. Methane leakage in the Permian Basin in Texas and New Mexico uh, is very different from methane emissions in the Marcellus Basin in Pennsylvania. Um, it also varies by time. Uh, there are certain operations that only happen during the day or that only happen during some part of the year where you'll have a lot more methane emissions than in other parts of the year. Sometimes these emissions are also very short duration. You might have a very large methane leak that goes on for a few hours and then it stops. And so there's a huge temporal and geographic variability in methane emissions. And this is part of why it's challenging to, to address this, because you need to be able to know exactly where these methane emissions are occurring, when they are occurring, and go and fix them right at the moment they are occurring.
0: Right. And, you know, one of the... um Challenges to doing all this measurement, as many of our listeners will know, is just the scale of the system, right? The oil and gas system. There are literally millions of wells out there that could potentially be leaking at any given moment, and then there are millions of miles of pipelines that could be leaking at any given moment. And so, this measurement issue um, has really been uh, at the forefront. And as you know well, Arvin, uh, there's been tons of new research, a lot of it conducted by you and your colleagues in the last ten years or so, that has tried to better quantify methane emissions from the oil and gas system. Why? did we need to do all that measurement? Uh, Kind of what was our state of knowledge of the methane problem, let's say 10 years ago? uh, And and how have we caught up uh, over the last decade or so?
1: Right. So one of the big things about addressing methane emissions is uh, you can only address something if you know where it is. And you can only know where something is if you go out and actually measure methane emissions. Uh, I mean, addressing methane emissions as policy is is relatively new it probably started in 2015 or so so until then there was not a lot of need to more accurately measure methane emissions you just need a reasonable estimate of what your emissions are and and that's what the u.s epa had done for a number of years before methane policy took hold um but but there are a lot of problems with that in the sense that uh the estimates that the epa used to develop are either industry reported or they use outdated data or they get data from very small number of I mean, the shale revolution in the United States around 2000-2010 has significantly changed the landscape of U.S. oil and gas production and with it, the the landscape of U.S. oil and gas methane emissions as well. And so to be able to better understand what the methane emissions impact of the shale revolution are, where it's being emitted, how much is being emitted, we needed a much more robust and more recent estimates of methane emissions. Um, and, And part of the challenge was that Technologies didn't exist 20 years ago to, to accurately measure methane emissions. We only had one or two systems that were crude and and, and will not produce accurate estimates of, of methane emissions. But that has changed just over the past decade. We have had a tremendous explosion in the number of startup companies based right here in the United States developing new technologies, new sensors, new platforms uh, that are able to cost effectively and in a much faster manner than before, um, find and estimate methane emissions from oil and gas activity. And so this combination of of the need for better estimates from a policy perspective, as well as the development of new technologies, really led to a significant advance in our understanding of methane emissions.
0: Yeah, that's great. And In a recent study that uh, you released with a number of co-authors that's called Closing the Methane Gap in U.S. Oil and Natural Gas Production Emissions Inventories, you uh, and your co-authors really tried to improve or or at least suggest some ways to improve the way that we currently account for methane emissions from oil and gas in the United States. Can you give us a high-level overview of what this study was trying to accomplish and, and what you did?
1: Sure. Um, this, this paper really was, was the outcome of, of tremendous effort and number crunching from Jeff Rutherford. He's the first author on the paper, uh, currently a graduate student at Stanford University. So, so the basic issue with what we solve in that paper is this. For a number of years, you know, there's been a lot of different measurements of methane emissions from U.S. oil and gas operations. We have had planes fly over facilities, we have had satellites fly over, we have had drones, we have had scientists drive around trucks mounted with sensors and measure methane emissions. So we have a lot of data on methane emissions. And every time we looked at the data, we found that what we measured at these sites was was significantly larger than what the EPA said in its emissions inventory, methane emissions were at these sites. So we didn't really understand where the gap came from or whether our measurements were wrong or whether the EPA's estimates were wrong. So what this paper really did is try to reconcile these measurements with what the EPA's inventory told methane emissions were. And that's really the biggest advance that that we've seen uh, with this work. So I'll give a very brief introduction to how EPA does this. So EPA calculates emissions by multiplying two numbers. These two numbers are called activity factors, and emissions factors. So activity factors is basically telling you how many components you have on your facility. So let's take tanks as an example because people understand tanks, it's used to store liquids and oil and and other products coming out from oil and gas production. So activity factor refers to the number of tanks at a site. And the second number is emissions factor. Emissions factor refers to the average emissions per component. So in this case, it'll be average emissions from one tank. And so if you multiply the number of tanks with the average emissions from tanks, which is multiplying the activity factor with the emissions factor, you're going to get total emissions from tanks. And so EPA does this for every single component at an oil and gas facility and adds them up and get an estimate of total methane emissions. And this is not just the EPA, the IPCC estimates of methane emissions are based on this and on international estimates of methane emissions by other countries are also based on a very similar methodology. So yes, we, we did this for the US EPA work, but this has implications far beyond uh, just the United States. And so what we found were two issues with the way EPA does this. The first thing is, you know, the methodology was not wrong. That's the best part of this, because we are not asking EPA to change the way they calculate methane emissions. What we are asking the EPA to do is sort of update the numbers they are using. So I, I talked about two numbers, the activity factor and the emissions factor. Um, activity factors um, are, are the number of components on the site. But because of the shale revolution around 2010, uh, oil and gas production sites look very different now than they looked maybe 30, 40 years ago. The problem is EPA is using, for a large part of its inventory, still outdated data. So the number of tanks or, say, the number of compressors on the site are actually different than the assumptions made by the EPA, which is based on much older data. And so we want the EPA to update those numbers. The second part is similar. So the emissions factors, which is the average emission per component, uh, is also different. And the reason is much more interesting. So over the past five years, when we did these field measurements of methane, what we found was called the the super emitter problem. What that really means is if you have 100 tanks, um, most of the emissions from all the tanks come from a very small number of tanks. So for example, out of the 100 tanks, there'll be five tanks that are emitting a lot of methane and 95 of them are not emitting much at all. And so we have a very small number of equipment that are responsible for a majority of the emissions. And so to be able to calculate a correct average emissions for those tanks, you need to take all measurements from those five super emitting tanks. So if you you miss many of them, then your average is going to be significantly lower than what the reality is. And, and the problem with, with EPA's emissions factors is that in the past, they used very small number of samples. So out of, you said there are millions of wells in this country, right? EPA probably went to 20 of them and measured methane emissions there and said, okay, this is the average methane emissions we measured, and we're going to extrapolate this to the entire country. And what we're saying is... Because there are super emitters, you cannot have a small sample size. You need to measure thousands and thousands of fill to get a reasonably accurate average. And that's the second issue that we found. If you update these emissions factors, and if you update the correct component counts that are, that are present in the country now, what you do is you close the gap between EPS actual inventory and this updated inventory. So the methodology is fine, but you have to change the numbers to the reality that you're facing right now. And when you do that, we magically close the gap between measurements and the inventory. So the inventory estimates go up by about 60%, which exactly matches what we're measuring in the field. And so that's that's a huge thing. We now found out where the problem is, and therefore we can solve it. And this has implications far beyond the US, because the IPCC recommends countries that don't have their own inventory process to use EPA methodology and EPA data to develop their methane emissions inventories and so when we improve the us eps methane inventory we we also improve the inventory of so many other countries and we'll get a much better estimate of global oil and gas methane emissions
0: yeah that's really interesting and um well, you said it was magic. It sounds like hard work, uh, not magic, but um, but uh, we'll, we'll go with your term. Uh, so if EPA were to adopt your magic approach, I think you said um, that it would be roughly 60% higher than EPA's current um, uh, estimates. Can you um, just sort of confirm that for me and also maybe help us understand like, where are the biggest differences between the measurements that you're seeing in the field and what EPA is reporting in its inventories?
1: Right, that's correct. Um, the current best-known estimate of methane emissions compiled from all the field studies we have done is about 2.3%. So when I say 2.3%, what I mean is of if you produce 100 units of natural gas, 2.3 units of natural gas gets leaked into the atmosphere as methane. Uh, if you looked at EPA's uh, emissions inventory, it's close to about one6 and 1.7%, so measurements are about 60% higher. So when we use our updated numbers for activity factors and emissions factors, we close that gap and we get the inventory also up to around 2.3% of, of methane emissions. Um, so if, if you look at where, where these methane emissions come from and where is the biggest uh, difference, uh, much of this gap between measurements and, and the current inventory is on the production side of things so we have a good handle on methane emissions from the distribution side from from pipeline leakage but what really changed is is production sector emissions which is upstream emissions which is where we have had uh, the most growth over the past two decades because of unconventional shale uh, development um, and, and specifically if you look at the upstream side one of the biggest sources of emissions uh, we know are tanks. Tanks that store oil, tanks that store other liquids, and tanks that store water that come from the ground when you drill for oil and gas. And the reason is it's relatively simple to understand. Um, when you have liquids underground under very high pressure, a lot of the gas, methane gas and natural gas, gets dissolved in these liquids. So when you bring those liquids up and dump it into tanks, uh, it, the tanks are at atmospheric pressure, and so all of those gas that was dissolved in it gets released. And once they get released, they directly go into the atmosphere. And so in oil and gas basins that have a lot of oil and liquids production, you're also going to have a lot of tanks and therefore a lot of methane emissions. And and this is one major area where EPA had significantly underestimated the average methane emissions from tanks. When we updated that that actually significantly reduce the gap between measurements and inventory. So that's that's one thing we definitely want to change. And and to EPA's credit, they've been doing this. Uh, but of course, the processes at the EPA to change the numbers they've been using is, is always year-long processes, so things take time. Um if if you look at recent updates to the inventory, EPA has used some of the studies uh, that were conducted recently to update their emissions factors uh in the midstream segment for say compressor stations. Uh they're trying to do that for all other uh, parts of the supply chain as well, but it's a slow process.
0: Yeah, for sure. And um, you've mentioned the shale revolution a couple times. You know, one issue that, um, that I think is really interesting is you know to what extent is it newer wells and newer equipment that's driving uh, these leaks or is it older equipment uh, and older wells that are driving the leaks? You already mentioned the issue of you know liquids producing regions having relatively high emissions rates. Do we know much about the distribution of leaks between kind of the newer shale revolution type wells versus the older legacy wells that are producing um, and and also are they all like mixed up right It's an integrated system so can you just talk a little bit about that?
1: That is a great question, Uh, partly because this is sort of Uh, getting to to the forefront of scientific research on methane emissions. Um, There are some things we know about methane, obviously. For example, we know that um, uh, basins that that co-produce oil and gas uh, tend to have higher methane emissions than basins that are just dry gas. For example, the Marshall Shale has typically had lower methane leakage than the Permian Basin in Texas. Uh, Part of the reason is because of the type of operations and the type of equipment you need for dry gas versus uh, wet gas production. Wet gas is where you have both oil gas uh, co-produced um, th- so that's that's a major difference and there are some indications that your production volume and and the age of the infrastructure also plays a role in in methane leakage but 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 the interesting thing is there are a lot of factors that affect methane leakage and we can point out and say okay this well is older therefore it's going to have higher methane emissions because there are four or five other factors that also affect methane emissions at that site and and the, it, this is interesting because one of the recent things that we tried in our group is look at whether machine learning can be used to solve this problem so what we did was the compiled methane emissions that have been recently measured uh, we took in a lot of data associated with oil and gas basins things like production things like age things like what are the major things on that side and, and wanted to explore whether machine learning could help us understand which variables, which of these properties are going to be most important in in addressing methane leakage. And it's it's an active area of research. We are looking to see which factors are going to be most important and therefore address them as part of methane policy. But, but one thing we do know is that um, You know, methane emissions sort of is an equal opportunity pollutant. Uh, We see methane emissions from old wells. We see methane from new wells. We see methane from dry gas basins. We see methane from wet gas basins. Um, So the the challenge here in terms of addressing methane emissions uh, through policy is, is an approach that is fast, that is cost effective, and that can be applied over a wide range of geographic and temporal scales.
0: Yeah. That's really interesting, and so let's turn now to that uh, policy topic. Um, as you know really well, Arvin, you know there's a lot of interest right now uh, in Washington D.C. on this idea of a federal methane fee for upstream oil and gas production. Um, you know there are different designs about how such policy could work, but you know some have been introduced uh, on the floor of the Senate, and there's other ideas that have been kicking around. Can you give us just kind of a general idea about how a federal methane fee might work?
1: Right, so th- this is an interesting concept because it's it's not only getting a lot of traction in the US but also outside the US, uh, especially in Europe. Uh, for example, uh, US LNG gets uh, exported to, to European Union uh, and one of the their methane policies in Europe suggests that they're going to be thinking about what is the emissions footprint of their LNG sources and, and try to reduce their carbon footprint by reducing emissions associated with the LNG supply chain. So this idea of, of a fee-based methane uh, policy is, is very important uh, there are also utilities that are thinking about what we call uh, responsible natural gas or certified natural gas which is basically a fancy way of saying uh, if you buy natural gas from me i can guarantee that my leakage is less than one percent something like that uh and, and the way it work is, is basically uh, we we find out what the methane emissions at the operator level at the asset level are across a country, and and there's a fee much like a carbon fee associated with methane emissions. And so based on what your methane emissions are, you pay a certain fee. Uh, but but one important thing in all the proposals that I've seen is that if these mechanisms, if these policies. Uh, are not based on direct and frequent measurements of methane emissions, they are not going to work. There's absolutely no substitute for frequent and direct measurements of methane to be able to go to a fee-based approach. And, And a little bit of history here, until very recently, in fact even now, methane policy was not based on measurement of how much methane you're emitting. It's just based on, you know, If you're an oil and gas operator producing natural gas, do X, Y, and Z, irrespective of what your methane emissions is. So a high-emitting operator and a low-emitting operator will both have the exact same policies that they have to comply. So if you are going to have a fee-based mechanism, then you're going to need to distinguish between an operator with high emissions and an operator with low emissions. And the only way to do it is with measurements. And so, yes, we can move to a fee-based structure. And there are new technologies that can actually allow us to to estimate methane emissions cost effectively. But any of that approach must be based on direct measurements of methane emissions.
0: Right. Great. And You know, one of the ideas that I think is floating around out there is, you know, if you're an oil and gas operator in, let's say, the Permian Basin, you are assumed to have the sort of average leak rate of all the other operators in your basin, unless you can prove otherwise. And the way that you would prove otherwise would be through, you know, implementing some of these technologies that you're talking about. Does that sound about right?
1: Yeah, that, that sounds about it. And, and that's that's the biggest challenge because, uh, I mean, with all the data that's been collected, one thing that we're seeing is that even within the, I mean, it's, it's easy to talk about oil and gas industry as a monolith, and, and, and I understand why we do that, uh, given the challenges we face in addressing climate policy, but even within the oil and gas industry, if you look at methane emissions profiles, there's a huge variation across the industry. You have operators who have uh, proactive policies to address methane emissions from their facilities, and they have very low emissions when we measure them. And you also have operators who don't care about methane emissions unless there's uh, you know, federally mandated policy to address them, and so they have high methane emissions. And, and so even within operators, there's this huge difference. So when we go to a fee-based system, uh, it is indeed possible to reward operators who are actually addressing their methane emissions while penalizing and incentivizing others who are not currently to reduce their uh, methane emissions footprint. Uh, but again, to be able to do this, to be able to reward operators who are managing methane emissions will require us to, to effectively measure methane emissions at these sites on an ongoing and continuous basis.
0: Yeah, that's great, and and that leads me right to the last question I wanted to ask you before we go to our top of the stack segment, which is about you know some of the voluntary um, measures that oil and gas companies have taken to reduce their methane emissions. You know there are, are several different groups at the international and domestic levels uh, of oil and gas companies that have you know made public statements that they are going to work together and try to reduce their emissions rates to you know well below one percent. Uh, of the natural gas that they produce, and some of them have made public announcements that they have achieved those goals. Um, to your knowledge, are those estimates, you know, being measured well? Do you trust them? What's your What's your take on some of the voluntary efforts that are out there?
1: um this is This is a complicated question because i I truly appreciate the sentiment that they're coming from i mean oil and gas companies are are rightfully getting pressured from a number of different avenues from from investors from from activists from government from customers and so they have to do something about this problem and and many of them, as you rightly said, are trying different approaches to voluntarily reduce their methane emissions, but it is not a substitute for effective methane mitigation policy that applies to everyone um are, is it, do I believe that their emissions are already below one percent? No, I don't believe that. Um, I think they are taking efforts to reduce methane emissions, but unless they can demonstrate in a transparent way, through measurements, that they have actually reduced methane emissions to below one percent, not just once but on a continuous basis, uh, it's it's hard to trust the numbers that come from from sort of Excel spreadsheet calculations of methane emissions. So again, I come back to the same point I made before: uh, if you're going to Tell the world that that your methane emissions, your methane footprint is less than one percent. Show me the data. If if there's no data to back that up, then there's no reason anybody should believe that number. That's that's the first part. The second part is is a more challenging problem because uh, I'm sure you've seen in the news recently that that big publicly traded oil and gas companies are, are shedding themselves of emissions-intensive assets, whether it's in the oil sands in Canada or, or, or operations in Alaska, to, to private companies. So on paper, big companies like BP and Shell reduce their emissions footprint, but what in reality happens is these companies go to the hands of private operators who are not beholden to, to shareholder or investor activism. And so what happens is when, when the, these things happen, uh, if you don't have methane policy from the federal government or from the states, you're going to have more of these emissions intensive operations move to private hands. And so you're actually not reducing emissions, but continuing the problem while on paper looking better for some of these larger companies that have voluntary mitigation efforts. Uh, so there's there is no substitute for, for effective methane policy that takes care not just of companies who are proactively Uh, addressing methane emissions, but for all companies that have oil and gas operations in the country.
0: Yeah, that's such a great point. And it reminds me of, you know, kind of a dumb joke that I use sometimes, which is that people complain a lot about big oil, but a lot of times it's actually little oil that uh, might be more worth worrying about. Um, so uh so let's move on now, Arvin, to our top of the stack segment where we ask you to recommend something that you've read or watched or heard, even if it's just tangentially related to the environment, uh, that you would recommend to our listeners. And I'll start with um a book review that uh was passed along to me by Elizabeth Watson, our producer, our fantastic producer. Um so Elizabeth shared uh this new book review in The New Yorker uh written by Katherine Schultz, and the name of the article is What Do We Hope to Find when we look for a snow leopard. Um, so it's really uh, just a fantastic meditation on kind of the, the essence of people writing about nature and the interactions that they have in nature and the way that they think about and portray nature. Uh, for anyone who's interested in the environment, and especially people who love writing, uh, I think you'll really enjoy this article as well. Um, so thanks to Elizabeth for uh, sending that to me. And uh, now over to you, Arvin. what's uh, on the top of your stack?
1: Alright, great. So I have a couple of things, actually. So the first thing is a, a big shout out to local journalism. You know, I've been closely following the, the impacts of Hurricane Ida in, in New Orleans and Louisiana and, and the oil and gas operations there. And I, I do want to say you know, what a brilliant job that the Times-Picayune is, is doing covering it. I mean, the national news media have, have gone past the hurricane now that the, the eye of the hurricane has passed the region. But some of the most dire impacts of this hurricane is coming in the aftermath. Um, you know, Lots of communities have been left without power and, and sweltering in in hundred plus degree heat. And there's been three hundred and fifty major oil and gas spills in the Gulf of Mexico. That's being reported by by local journalists there. Uh, I, I think this is a this is a call for people to support local journalism uh, so that they could get a lot more depth and information about the impacts of, of extreme weather, but also of of climate change uh, in those regions. Yeah, here, here the the second thing i want to talk about uh and and recommend to to listeners is is a podcast uh it's called the india energy hour uh this is a podcast based uh uh, solely right now on on energy transition in India. Um, as you know, they have one of the largest uh, economic growth potential in the near future, as well as energy uh, energy growth potential. And so, the decisions and the policies India takes as to its energy future, whether it's going to be continued depending on coal or move to, to cleaner energy sources, is going to have a huge impact. On the climate future of this planet, uh, and it's a great podcast, and um, it's it's hosted by one of my uh, uh, good friends, um, and and they bring in different experts to talk about you know how how India can transition to a clean energy future, and and some of the problems that we face in in the United States, on how. Uh, the energy transition is intricately connected to social and cultural norms around our energy use and energy sources. It's, it's amplified much more in the context of India, given that a lot of it is state-managed. So it's a great podcast, a lot of different guests, and I would encourage everyone to to listen to that, to see how the transition is happening in places outside the developed world.
0: Yeah, that's a great recommendation, and I've actually been meaning to listen to that too. It looks really good. We, we did an episode maybe a year ago or so with Varun Sivaram, where we talked about India, but obviously we were only scratching the surface because it was just a 30-minute discussion. Um, So that sounds like a really great way to dive deep into that topic. Great. Well, Arvind Kumar from the University of Texas at Austin, thank you for joining us today on Resources Radio, helping us understand the methane issue, and we really
2: appreciate your time.
1: Thank you very much for having me. It was great to talk to you.
2: You've been listening to Resources Radio. Learn how to support Resources for the Future at rff.org support. If you have a minute, we'd really appreciate you leaving us a rating or a comment on your podcast platform of choice. Also, feel free to send us your suggestions for future episodes. Resources Radio is a podcast from Resources for the Future. RFF is an independent nonprofit research institution in Washington, D.C., Our mission is to improve environmental, energy, and natural resource decisions through impartial economic research and policy engagement. The views expressed on this podcast are solely those of the podcast guests and may differ from those of RFF experts, its officers, or its directors. RFF does not take positions on specific legislative proposals. Resources Radio is produced by Elizabeth Wasson, with music by me, Daniel Ramey. Join us next week for another episode.